lifetime performer, Damon Sharp started his career as a touring dancer when he was only 15 years old. His early success as a dancer led to multiple acting jobs, a television show, and even a record deal before it all came crashing down around him, teaching him the first and greatest lesson of his career, work ethic. This ultimately became Damon's greatest asset and led to the creation of songs like Love Don't Cost a Thing by Jennifer Lopez and more. Today, Damon is an international producer working in several different genres of music. He joins us this week to talk about his journey and the importance of working hard and never taking no for an answer on The Big Break. Let's just get started with uh, where you're from, where you grew up, and um, how you got started with music. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I was born in, in Cleveland, Ohio. I lived there probably till I was about six or seven years old. Then I moved out to Phoenix, Arizona with my parents, who were both teachers, and my brother and sister. And you know, when I first got out there, probably in my teens, I, I loved you know break dancing and street dancing and you know, I started taking classes for that. And that kind of transitioned me into my, my love for music. I, I always tell people a lot of my musicality always stems back from my background as a dancer. So, you know, I, I usually start songs with, you know, you know, the drum, the drums and, and bass and the rhythm section, just because I'm, I'm still such a dancer at heart, you know, and, and that, and that allowed me to, when, around age 15, I started getting opportunities to come out to LA and audition for different dance gigs. And then I just started landing a bunch of jobs. So at that point, I kind of went to my parents, you know, at 15 years old and said, this is what I want to do. I love dancing. I love singing. I love music. I love acting. I was kind of a little jack of all trades, kind of all over the place at that point. Um, but it did, it did get me to LA because my parents offered to uh, come out to LA and try it for a summer. And, you know, I was fortunate enough. I ended up booking, you know, a bunch of national commercials and, then I booked a, you know, a tour dancing for a major artist at the time. So then my parents moved out to, to California, you know, and at that point I, I booked a, a tour as a backup dancer out, gosh, I was only 15 at the time. And, you know, it was with, uh, I don't know if you remember the singer Tiffany and new kids on the block. Uh -huh. um, I was touring with them and, you know, as a dancer, I would stand on the side of the stage and see these guys and, and, and Tiffany singing. And I was like, wow, this is, I think this is what I really want to do. It really kind of further, it gave me further validation that music was something I wanted to do. Yeah, and ironically, you know, all these years later, I ended up uh, producing on New Kids on the Block last album. <laughs> you know, after all these years of, of of kind of it kind of came, it was a kind of a full circle moment for me. That's awesome. So, yeah. did you get into dancing just like by your own interest, or did someone else introduce you to it? Or yeah, that I mean, a lot of my friends were we we were breakers and street dancers. There wasn't much else to do in in Phoenix, <laughs> you know, but do that. So, you know, it kind of just it just it just led me to that. And you know, I'd always listen to music. My parents were very. I say they were kind of like a jukebox around the house because they would play everything from Stevie Wonder to Michael Jackson to, you know, The Temptations. And then my dad was a little more on the rock side. So he would play like Peter Frampton and The Beatles and uh, Rolling Stones. So, you know, I really got to have a cool mixture of influences. And I, th I think to this day, they still kind of apply to what I do. So you're, you're touring around at, at 15. Did that feel normal to you? 
You know what's weird is it's I always tell people it was almost like my version of going to college, even though I was still barely in high school, you know, because I didn't actually go to college. So, you know, this and then and then right after I did that tour, that was a good four month tour, I came back to LA and literally months later I booked a uh, a TV show on NBC, which was on Saturday mornings after Save by the Bell for, for about a year and a half. Um, we actually had a record deal with FBK EMI Records, which at the time was like the hottest label. They had like Vanilla Ice and Technotronic and Wilson Phillips and all these big, big acts, you know. So um, I was fortunate to kind of cut my teeth. And, you know, even though it was kind of a, it was, it was kind of a, for lack of a better word, kind of a cheesy boy band, we were a little bit of a knockoff of the new kids on the block. But, you know, for me to be able to at that age, you know, be around producers and writers and, you know, have my own TV show and have success, you know, I was, I was making, you know, probably six figures a year for almost two years. And then fast forward, the show's canceled. I'm on unemployment and I go from, you know, taking pictures with Will Smith to serving Will Smith a Pepsi. So it was a real, real humbling life lesson, you know, but I was so fortunate to have that happen. You know, it was almost ironic that that was kind of my big break. And then I had to have it yanked from me in order to have my second chapter big break. How did you deal with that? How did you, I mean, you, you kind of had a, a taste of success and then it's kind of all gone in a, in the snap of fingers, but how, yeah, how did I mean, you? I, you know, I was in my teens still at that point. So, you know, it was very hard, you know, but I, I uh, you know, I kind of went through the, the whole gambit of emotions of, uh, at first I was like, Oh good. I don't need these guys anyway. I'm going to go solo, you know? And it's like, of course that, that didn't manifest. And then, like I said, sure enough, I ended up you know, instead of going out and utilizing the little bit of momentum I had going, because, you know, we had, we had board game, we had dolls, we had, you know, sleeping bags and pajamas, and you know, we were right there at the cusp of it. You know, we were doing autograph signings for, you know, three to 5,000 people and, you know, playing with big acts and, you know, it was all taken away overnight. Hmm. But instead of taking advantage of it, the teenager in me was like, well, F the system, you know, they don't know good talent anyway, you know, and I went into a bit, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a free fall, you know, and had to, had to kind of, get to a place in my life where, you know, I turned it around and said, you know what, I need to put in the hard work. I need to humble myself. I need to get a regular job again. You know, so I did that. And, you know, I put myself in a position where at one point I was going, I went back to school for music. I was working a part-time job. I was acting again. You know, I was kind of doing everything I could to try and, you know, respark my career. Um, and, you know, just when things kind of started going in the right direction, I got a call, you know, I'd kind of been, I always tell people like, I, I like went through, I think like seven or eight different really terrible boy bands over the years that mm -hmm. I was signed to. But this one kind of changed my whole course of my destiny because I, I met my mentor, a guy by the name of Rick Wake, um, who if you don't know who he is, he's he's a genius. Like he produced everyone from Celine to Mariah to Whitney to J-Lo to Mark Anthony. I mean, you name it, he was the guy um, for a very long time and still is is, is legendary and amazing. He, he put me in the group. Uh, which was like yet another boy band. And, you know, for a good three years, you know, I got to kind of cut my teeth learning from his producers and writers. Because at the time, this is at the late 90s, he had like everybody who was on NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, uh, you name it, all the big pop apps were going through his, you know, his camp. So mm -hmm. I kind of got to sit and watch them produce and write. And, you know, we went through yet another, I went through another three record deals that did not pan out. And then at the end of the three years, we were presented with another record deal with Warner Brothers Records. And I just remember being on that phone call. And at that point, I was like, man, I've been doing this for three years. I don't think I want to be a part of this. I want to like take my music seriously. And at the time, you know, I, I was always, obviously they were, they were giving us a monthly stipend, but I wasn't like rolling in money in any way, shape or form. I, as a matter of fact, I was still waiting tables part-time just because I had learned my lesson the first go around. Oh yeah. So the end of those three years, I pass on the deal. 
Um, and it was a scary situation. You know, I was kind of like, I let go and I was like, wow, what am I going to do now? Hmm. You know, and I go yet again, back onto unemployment again. And, you know, as fate would have it, you know, about a month later, I get a call from Rick Wake out of nowhere. And he's like, you know, I found this CD on my desk of some of your songs. He's like, there's some really good songs on here. He's like, you wrote these? And I said, yeah, I said, I've been trying to tell you for three years, you know, I, I, I love songwriting, I love production. And I said, you kind of always looked at me as the boy band guy, you know, understandably so. But, you know, he goes, there's some really great songs on here. He's like, let me shop these around. And he's like, you should really come think about coming to work with me as a writer and a producer. And I was like, ah, I don't know, Rick, you know, I was with you for three years. The whole artist thing didn't pan out. Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, it's a whole different situation if you're with me as a writer. He's like, I'll tell you what. He's like, let me pitch these songs and I'll get back to you. And we hang up the phone and I'm like, oh, you know, I, I probably thought I would maybe never hear from him again. So as fate would have it, a couple of weeks go by and, and he called, or maybe a month, and he calls me again. And he's like, I got some of your songs placed. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, at the time, I didn't really understand the gravity of the situation. But, you know, he's like, yeah. He's like, do you know who Jennifer Lopez is? Like, oh, yeah. She had just come off of having Waiting for Tonight and um, If You Had My Love, but she wasn't huge, huge yet. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, she wants to cut your song, Why'd You Lie to Me? And I was like, oh, that's cool. And he goes, yeah, there's a new artist named Anastasia who's an international artist. She's about to blow up and she wants to do your song, Love Don't Cost a Thing. And I was like, oh, that's great. I was like, cool. All right, man. Well, this sounds amazing. Well, keep me posted. You know? And again, we, we kind of hang up and I'm like, I, I don't really understand what this means at this point, right? Because I'm, I'm still kind of naive because I've always been kind of just on the artist side. Mm -hmm. um, so again, like maybe a month goes by, maybe even two months. Um, and I get a, a, friend, a call from a friend of mine who's interning at a label. And she's like, she's like hey, D, there's, you know, I see your name on the back of R&R Magazine. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, it says love don't cost a thing. It says written by you and a couple other people. She's like, I'm looking right at it. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And she's like, go, and I, I said, let me go to a newsstand. So I drove to a newsstand and I pick up the thing and I flip it over. And, and sure enough, there's my name and there's love don't cost a thing. So I'm like, oh my God, this is insane. But it's JLo now instead of Anastasia. So I call up Rick and he's like, yep. He's like, he's like, it, it went through. He's like, I didn't want to say anything. He's like, I don't like jinxing anything. Um, but you know, it went from Jennifer it's switching hands to Jennifer and the other song went to uh, Anastasia. Why'd you lie to me? And uh, you know, it went from Jennifer initially not even really loving it to it making the record to becoming the single mm. and going to radio like in a matter of seconds. Mm. And then, you know, from there it's like things just, as soon as that came out, it blew up and Rick was like, I really love for you to come work with me. And I had a lot of kind of, you know, I don't want to say snaky people, but people in my ear going, Oh, the cuts are already there. You should go someplace else and sign with so-and-so. I said, no, I said, Rick is the one who got me this situation. Hmm. I said, I'm, I'm going to be loyal to him. So I did my deal with him and thank God I did. Cause you know, I had a good almost seven year run with him at his company and we worked on everything from obviously Jennifer. We, we worked on the Chicago soundtrack that won, that won the Grammy for best soundtrack. I mean, you name it, we got on so many huge projects together and Anastasia, ironically, people don't know her in the States, but worldwide she sold about 40 million records. Mm -hmm. So that was one that I just ended up working with pretty much my entire career and still keeping contact with her. So yeah, that was, that was, that was kind of my, my breakout moment. And, and like I said, since then I've, I've just, refuse to take no for an answer. And, I, and I've, I've just done everything in my power to try and try and keep the momentum going. Obviously, there's ups and downs. But, you know, I'm fortunate that, you know, all these years later now, uh, I've been able to be self-employed as as a musician and a producer and a songwriter and do what I love. So you were you were writing songs. Uh, was that during the when you were still doing the boy band stuff? Um, or oh, yeah. was that... I was, I was trying to write songs since I was, since I was like 15, but okay. they were terrible. Um, <laughs> it wasn't until I did that boy band and I really got to kind of hone, hone my craft. Can you talk me through how you came about meeting Rick? Yeah. So, so I have a very good friend named Derek Batiste. He, he goes by the name of DJ D Rick and he, he's actually on the show Wildin' Out. If you've ever seen that on MTV, mm -hmm. um, one of my very, very best friends. 
Somehow there was another gentleman by the name of Claude Brooks who was partnered with Rick Wake. And they were partnered on this boy band and we were going to do a TV show. And it was kind of going to be similar to what I did with my, with my first boy band and TV show I had on NBC. Um, and, you know, Derek was kind enough to introduce me and, you know, I got in the camp. And, and like I said, I, I didn't really have that. Re- ironically, I didn't have that much interaction with Rick during the, the boy band process. It was, you know, it was towards the end. Like I said, when when I when I transitioned out of the boy band and he found that CD was when we when we clicked and he really took me under his wing. So it was just kind of uh, being in the right place at the right time and and knowing the right. Well, people yeah, I mean, and I'm a firm believer of that. Like I used to not to I don't want to sound negative, but you know, a lot of people will say, well, it's all about just about a hit song. And I said, yeah, it's about a hit song, but it's also about being in the right place at the right time. I said, the, literally, the term I always use is the planets have to align. Because I've had songs, in my opinion, just as good as Love Don't Cost a Thing, but maybe they were on the wrong artist, or maybe they were on the right artist and it was released at the wrong time. Or, you know, there's just so many factors that, that fall into place. And it, for me, it's, it's, it's all about networking and relationships and not burning bridges. You know, because like I said, it doesn't matter if you're Pharrell or Timbaland or the, the biggest names on the planet, they've even had ups and downs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to always maintain those relationships in my opinion, in order to to keep your career pushing forward. How do you deal with those ups and downs in, in your, you know, because everyone, like you say, everyone goes through them. So how did you get through that and, and get to the kind of the breaking point for yourself? Man, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm lucky I have a very good support system around me of people that helps. Um, but, you know, I've just always had this innate thing of, of not giving up and, and not taking no for an answer. You know what I mean? And, and it's still to this day. I mean, like I said, I've been doing this for nearly almost 20. It'll be 20 years at the end of this year professionally. And, you know, I'm still you're still going to get no's every single day. I've sold 40 million records, but I still get a no every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, but I always tell people it's like with every no, you're that much closer to another yes. Hmm. You know, and I've seen and I've seen people on the path, like I said, give up and walk away right when things could have clicked for them or clicked for them a second time or a third time or a fourth time. You know, there's, 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 it's, it's all cyclical, right? And as long as you stay the course and you keep your finger on the pulse and keep and surround yourself with great creative people. And for me also, and this is a whole nother subject, but when I'm collaborating, I try to have a balance of people in the room. Like, so for myself, I always tell people I have like, you know, I have the, you know, the heart and wisdom of a vet, but the hustle of a, of, of a, of a new Jack who just, who just stepped fresh off the boat into LA. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I like to keep that around me. So if I'm in the room, maybe I want to have a female top liner who kind of has a different pers- perspective. And I want to have maybe uh, somebody working on the track with me who's some 19 year old kid that just moved here, you know, and it, it like, it just gives you a better sense of, you know, not everybody knows what's going on all the time out there. And, you know, I can only listen to so many Spotify playlists or go out to a club so many times to see what people are reacting to. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to collaborate with people and to keep your, your, you know, your finger on the pulse. So you did, so let's just for uh, timeline's sake, you were yeah. um, doing this stuff and then you got the cut with um, JLo and what year was that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that was two th- the very end of 2000 going into 2001. Gotcha. So this was like yeah. right at the, the kind of cutting edge of, uh, of music at that point then. Yeah, and I always tell people like I caught it's a blessing and a curse, right? To and a lot of young writers don't understand this. I got to catch it when the money was just everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. It was raining money. And then as soon as, you know, it was obviously before streaming, it was permanent and temporary downloads. That kind of slowed it down a little bit, not too bad once we got it adjusted, right? The statutory rate kind of adjusted and it was the same as physical CDs. Um, but then once it went to streaming, it was just a bit of a, a screeching halt. You know, so like I said, I got to taste that end of the glory days. Hmm. And now I think, you know, I, like I said, I'm a super optimistic person. I feel like we're heading right back there. Streaming is booming like crazy. So now with the, with the MLC and the MMA, 
I'm hoping we can, you know, we can get this back on track to where for new writers and, and even, like I said, and even established writers like myself, we can, there can be a future and, and people can really make the money that they deserve to be making as creators. Mm -hmm. Cause right now it is, it, it seems like it's very, um, it's like a one or a zero. You're either, you're, you're killing it in streaming or you're, you're just barely scraping by. So maybe even that yeah. out a little bit. Yeah. And for me, you know, for me, it's funny because like I've always, uh, you know, Rick always taught me to kind of look outside the box. I think some people, and I always, I always use the term, you know, you don't want to chase the whales every day because what happens is you get these songwriters that are like, well, I'm writing for Rihanna. I'm going to write for Rihanna every single day until I get a Rihanna cut. Hmm. But the reality is, and, and, you know, a lot of people know this, it's a very incestuous business, right? So Rock Nation has Rihanna. If you're not signed to Rock Nation Publishing, or Rock Nation management, your chances of getting on there are much smaller. Mm -hmm. You know, or like, like for example, like APG. If you're with APG, you have a much higher chance of getting on some of these Warner Brothers projects because everything's very in house. And that, and honestly, that's what ha Rick, Rick was very tied in at the time with with Matol Tommy Matola and Sony. So we would get first dibs on getting on projects as well. Um, so I always tell people, people will always go, "Well, I think I want to sign with." I'm just using an example, Sony uh, Sony ATV. Or I really want to be with Warner Chapel. And I'm like, well, really think about if somebody else is offering you a deal and maybe they're more embedded in a certain world that you fit, you've really got to weigh the pros and cons. You don't necessarily want to sign with the first company that's handing you a big check because, you know, three years down the line, you might be upset that you took that money and, you know, didn't have the attention or be plugged into a quote unquote system. As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties that were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that could be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the work. Do you find now that you've been in the the business um, for twenty almost twenty years? Um, mm -hmm. Do you find yourself transitioning more kind of like to that mentorship role? Or are you still um, excited about no, producing music it's, every it's day? Crazy. I mean, in, in in times, yes, of course. But you know, I still love the grind. You know what I mean? I still love mm -hmm. to be in sessions, and I still love to go take meetings. And you know, I've, I've been traveling much more than I did for a long time. In the beginning of my career, I was traveling. You know, I was gone two weeks out of every month. And then I think once the internet got fast enough to kind of upload files back and forth and collaborate that way, I got a little bit lazy and a little complacent. And then in the past few years, I've really upped my game again. I've been traveling like crazy and I feel like I'm in a whole new chapter of my career now, which is, it's really fun. But yeah, I mean, I, of course I do love, I love the give back. So I'm always doing, you know, when I'm with new writers, I, I sometimes I'm just probably blabbing a little too much, but it's like, I don't want them to have to go through any of the missteps that I did. I want them to be able to learn from my mistakes. 
So bouncing off that, if you could go back to 15 to 20 year old Damon, yeah. would you have done anything differently or how would you have, have, have played it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, like the second time around, which was when, was when Love Don't Cost a Thing hit, I wish I would have understood how important momentum was in this mm. business. You know, cause you get a little comfortable, you start seeing all these, all these checks start coming in and you're being handed projects. And I was kind of still, even after going through my first scenario where I lost everything, I was still kind of like, oh man, I'm never going to have to work again. This is amazing. <laughs> you know, it's like, you just get this false sense of, you know, everything, because there's all this money coming in, people are blowing up, blowing up your head. You know, it's very easy to go. I, I would literally so stupid. I would be like, oh, well, I already got one on jail. I don't need to get another one. <laughs> you know, and now I'm like, okay, hey, if I'm in on a project, I want to get as many songs on that project as I can, because I didn't realize, again, how incestuous this business is, you know, and if you're in on something, you've got to capitalize on it. And th that window is so short. You know, this is, I always use this example too. Like if, if George Lucas had only made star Wars, right. If that was the only movie he ever made and the only pro franchise he ever had, he, people would be like, Oh my God, that's the guy that did star Wars. Our business is the, and is the antithesis of that. Mm -hmm. People will be like literally six months. You could have a massive hit and somebody will be like, Oh, 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 you did a, uh, Love don't cost a thing. Oh yeah, that was a long time ago. Well, what do you have now? Mm. And they're very cynical about it. So you know you have to constantly be reinventing yourself and constantly hustling. And like I said, I'm much more open than I than I was. Like I'll work on any. Like if somebody wants me to work on a project and it sounds interesting, I jump in. Mm. Like I said, that's why I travel a lot. I just did something for Warner Brothers in Poland. I did something for you know Sony Australia. I did something for. I do tons of J-pop and K-pop and C-pop. You know, because you got to stay open and, and, and keep yourself relevant. Hmm. And, and it also creates, uh, obviously, a much bigger revenue stream if you can look outside the box and not always just focus on the obvious cuts. Right, right. Not always focus on just getting that, that Rihanna cut or, or something. Yeah, because remember, at the end of the day, like, you ha somebody has to be early on on those projects. You know what I mean? Like, so, somebody, you know, somebody had to have been the person who wrote, like my friend, uh, my friends, David Frank and Steve Kipner, they did Genie in a Bottle for Christina Aguilera. They didn't know that that was going to blow up like that. She mm -hmm. was just a brand new artist, you know, and they got lucky and got on a massive, you know, something that it was, obviously it was a hit song, you know? So it's like, it, it, they, but they didn't know that going into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how you say that, uh, you know, when you, you get the hit and the checks start coming in and they just get bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think everyone we talk to always feels like, oh yeah, this is, this is going to last forever. But well, yeah. Yeah, people don't realize, you know, it's almost like I, I use the analogy of a sport of, a, of an athlete, right? Because you see that it's even more rampant in the in the sports world. These guys will make ten million dollars, and then ten years later, they're signing football cards at a at a shop in Vegas mm -hmm. because they've spent all their money. Because it's just such a false sense of. You know, everybody thinks it's going to be a million dollar year. It's not always going to be a million dollar year, hmm. especially in this business. You know what I mean? Unless you're Max Martin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Every year is a million dollar year for him. Right. Um, but, you know, it's like once you get on that that role, it's like I, I always tell people I'm working with, I'm like, the minute I have another number one single, it's not if, it's when, because I'm not stopping, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when that happens, I'm not sleeping. I'm going to be working every day. I'm going to keep that role going and I'm going to try and be strategic and I'm going to be as smart about it as I can and, and work smarter, not harder. Now, nowadays you're kind of branching out internationally. I, I guess you're also kind of changing, cha changing your sound a little bit and getting a little bit more, um, uh, into the electric music scene with, mm -hmm. with, uh, DJs and um, yeah. that kind of scene. But how do you, um, how do you break out kind of, like you say, think outside of the box and go try to find some, some K-pop groups to work with or some J-pop groups or go to Poland and produce there? How do you, how do you do that? You know, it's crazy. I, I think the first thing 
is just being open to it. Hmm. Like I said, I, I would say nine out of 10 producers and songwriters I, I work with, you know, new people I'll meet, nine out of 10 will say, well, I only want to chase this. I only want to chase after Camila Cabello. I only want to chase after, after Beyonce. And I'm like, why would you all spend all, yeah, spend, maybe spend two weeks on that, right? Mm -hmm. but then why don't you spend a few days chasing after some other things that can create revenue for you and, and maybe be that, what I call scratcher ticket moment. Because you, if you put enough irons in the fire, something's going to catch, it's, something's going to blow up. You know what I mean? You, it's just a matter of getting enough of them out there. You know, and I, and I was talking with, um, there's an amazing writer named Josh Cubby who I work with. And we were talking about, and he met, was mentored by Toby Gad, if you know who Toby Gad is, who's, who's an incredible songwriter and mm -hmm. producer. And, you know, we used to call, we all kind of refer to the songs as song babies, right? And our mentality used to be, this is my song, baby. No, I'm not giving it to you. And now we're kind of in a place where we're like, hey, let's get our song babies out there because you don't know which one of those is going to grow up and become your next hit or the thing that can actually be that next you know, game changer catalyst moment. Yeah, I think it, it seems like, uh, or at least with some creative fields, that people are worried about sharing their baby with the world or someone taking it or... Of course, yes. And I speak, I speak about that all the time when I go to conferences. And that's probably the most, one of the most common questions. Oh my gosh, can I, can I put my music out? I'm afraid somebody's going to steal it. And my response always is, if, if someone's trying to steal it, that means it's doing, it's doing well. It's doing <laughs> something and you have recourse. You know, I'm not an attorney, but the minute that you copyright something, it's all time stamped. You have proof to show that it was yours. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, you're, you're excited to work hard in, in the industry. Absolutely. Back in the back in the day when you were you were just like dancing with your friends as a teenager, ninety nine or ninety nine point nine percent of people that were doing that at the time would probably, you know, go on and just just have a day job. So how did, if we could take it back, uh, take it back even further? Yeah. How did uh, you make that happen? I mean, moving to LA and and getting all those those gigs. I mean, obviously, I owe everything to my parents. But I think I think a lot of it, like I said, and I, this is the thing I always say. Like when I'm when I'm doing conferences, I'll ask people in the in the crowd. I'm like, "What do you think is the most important key to success?" In in your opinion, and most people don't nail it. And for me, it's work ethic. You know, so like I said, I I have innately always had this crazy work ethic. And I'm like, I may not be the best songwriter, I may not be the best vocalist, I may not be the best producer, but you know what? I'm gonna outwork everybody. And and I see that that happens. You know what I mean? I, I see it with a lot of my other friends. I'll, I see people now that are in the top 10 that I know and that I have worked with. And I'm like, some of, the, some of them obviously are stellar and some of them are very average, but you know what? They either have like an amazing work ethic or they got plugged into the right relationship. Because mm -hmm. like I said, people don't understand that. There's If you get the right relationship with the right person, you will get cuts and you will get placements over somebody who's a hundred times better than you. Obviously that's just my opinion, but like I said, that's what I've observed over my, over my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, we'll we'll see that too. Where people will say it's all about the song, and if you write the the best song, then it's gonna uh, find a home. But really, it's it's um, maybe like half the song, and then half hustle yeah, I, no, relationships. I, mean, honestly, I, I hate to I hate to say it, but I, I feel like it's like maybe eighty percent. It's like eighty percent hustle. You know what I mean? To, or 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 luck and timing, and you know. But obviously, luck is putting yourself in those positions. So if you're not out there, there's so many writers that I know that I want to shake. I just want to grab their head and shake them because they're like, "Oh, my publisher is doing this." My public, I said, publishers are great, but go out there and do it yourself too. Go make relationships with A and R's, with managers, with artists. You know, make those make those connections because 99, uh, so many of the percentage of the cuts that I get. Are come from my hustle, or like I said, a publisher will plug me into it, and mm -hmm. then I have to nurture that relationship. Hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting. What would your advice be to someone that has, you know, is, is talented and has that stuff, but doesn't really know how to, maybe they, they have the hustle, but they don't know how to apply that in the industry? Uh, you know what? I, I always say, don't be afraid to reach out to people. There's a tool that I didn't have when I first started in the business. It's the freaking internet. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you can reach out to people on Instagram, DM, on Twitter, uh, you know, there's a snap, Snapchat. I mean, there's so many LinkedIn, uh, WhatsApp. There's so many ways you can get a hold of people. Just do a little research. If uh, I think I, I think I was listening to the the is it is it Serm Style right? Mm-hmm. Serm Style, yeah, yeah. I was listening to his podcast that you guys did, and he was talking about how he utilized Twitter in the beginning of his career. Mm-hmm. But there's even so many more now, and I think people would be shocked if you start sending out those kind of just you know subtly. You don't want to stalk people, but you know if you start liking photos and commenting, and sooner or later that person will follow you back, and then you can DM them, or you know there's ways to track down information. There'll be a lot of people that will do things like this, and they'll give their information. You know, and it's like, don't be afraid to reach out to those people. And also, like I said, if your brothers, cousins, sisters, best friends, father-in-law know somebody who's an attorney at a, you know a, a music-based attorney firm, reach out. You know, use those those kind of things actually can work. I've yeah. seen it happen. I've I've seen it happen in, in my life now. You know, people I'll get a no from somebody at a label or no from somebody at a management company, and I'll go, you know what? Let me see who else I can go through, and I'll find another a different gatekeeper, and then boom, it happens and it manifests. Hmm. So. You know, that's, that goes back to what I said. Like it's, it, you know, if you don't take no for an answer, obviously at some point it may or may not pan out, but if you feel in your heart, you haven't went all the way, go all the way. Good advice. Yeah. We talked to, uh, a, a couple weeks ago, Emil Gontas and he was, um, yeah, he's going to refer me to you guys. He's amazing. Oh yeah. Love him. He, uh, and he was talking about how when he was just getting started, he would be sending beats and emails to, to managers' email addresses, pretending like he knew them, like they had met at some <laughs> previous point. <laughs> and the manager, yeah, yeah. you know, the person, you don't want to be like, I don't think I know you. So they'd just be like, yeah, great. I remember meeting you. Like, let's talk again sometime soon. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, that was Absolutely. fascinating. I mean, you're, you're working kind of more in the international space, branching out there. Um, what, what else is going on in the future for you? Man, it's a little bit of everything, you know. Like I said, I, I've got a mixture of, you know, I work, be working with some some stateside, you know, major label artists, some indie artists, you know, K-pop, J-pop, C-pop, tons of EDM. You know, I just had a release with Morgan Page on Armada. I had another one with Gattuso on Armada. I've got one coming up in August uh, with Sonderling. That's a very personal record for me. Mm-hmm. So it's a, uh, you know, it's exciting, you know, and, and I have uh, I have some artists that I that I also uh, consult for who are amazing. Uh, a woman by the name of Hilary Roberts, who's a humanitarian and, and an amazing artist in her own right and has a really amazing message of, of redemption and positivity. And, uh, you know, I have a writer named Jimmy Bernie, who's incredible, who I manage, who did uh, two on the last Demi Lovato album. And, you know, he and I got nominated for Grammys working on Charlie Wilson. And, you know, so it's like I said, it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag for me, but I enjoy that. And, and, and that's, that's helped me survive in this business. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, not being so, I don't, I try not to operate with blinders on, you know, I like to keep an open stance and look for open doors and, and that, and that's worked for me. You know, it's, it's given me longevity. And like I said, I, I it's not, it's not if it's when, it's when I have another big hit, I'm going to parlay that and I'm going to plug in all the people in my network that I, that I can. And I, I enjoy doing that as well. I love, I love bringing people that I, I genuinely like working with, you know, bringing them work and, and giving them praise because I think that I think that's so important for all of us. So in 2005, you released the the record with um, with a whole raft of of people for as the uh, Hurricane Katrina relief thing. Can you talk about that really quick? Yeah. Just 
Yeah, that was a big undertaking. It was called the Come Together Now Project. It was pretty amazing. I did it with a good friend of mine named Denise Rich, who's a who's an amazing woman, philanthropist, and the actress Sharon Stone, believe it or not, mm-hmm. um, who also is just an insanely giving person and uh, an old production partner of mine named Mark Feist. You know, we, t- we ended up traveling for like almost a good year recording all, we had Celine Dion, we had John Legend, we had Joss Stone, we had some huge, Natalie Cole got, you know, RIP, God, God bless her. You know, it was it was an amazing project. It was a big undertaking, but you know, it was nice to do something to give back and and be able to uh, be able to generate some income that that could be you know donated back to the community that needed help. I think I think it's our duty as creators, especially once we've had some success, to allocate time to do that. You know, and that's why I I, I go and speak at a lot of events and you know, because I and a lot of times they're it's not even paid. It's just I feel like it's my duty to give back and and be thankful for what I what I've been blessed to have in my life. Yeah, it's a good uh, good attitude to have too. Well, yeah. Unless there's anything else that you uh, that you really are feel compelled to talk about, or um, any other yeah, I mean, moments I, I, that I uh, love to touch on, uh, you know, balance. I think that's the one. The other thing that I would have told younger Damon okay. is to have balance in your life. You know, I think a lot of people. I hear people will come to the studio like, "I'm on my third session of the day. I'm about to do a fourth session," and I'm like, "You know what? You're going to completely blow out your creative well." Um, and that's what I used to do. You got to refill your well to have that creativity. You also have to have experiences in life in order to to, to create great music. Mm-hmm. Because at some point you're going to burn out of things to talk about and inspiration. So for me, I think finding balance in my life has has really been key. Yeah. How do you how do you do that? What uh, what are your kind of outlets? My family. Yeah. You know that's 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 number one. Uh, and then, then fine, you know, I don't have a ton of hobbies, <laughs> but you know, it's like it, whether it's just going to the movies or uh, travel. I mean, I love traveling, and you know, j- I just think having that balance. Sometimes it's better to write two amazing songs in a week instead of trying to write ten songs that may or may not be amazing. You know, most likely, if you write three songs in a day, they're not all going to be great. Thanks for listening to Damon's story on this episode. We'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. You can get that automatically downloaded to your podcast feed by subscribing to this podcast. And be sure to share this with anyone you think might like to hear stories from more songwriters and musicians like Damon and learn about how these artists came to be. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.